Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. James Allen McPherson was a master writer of short stories and essays. He was the first black American to receive a Pulitzer Prize in fiction, and he was an influential and beloved teacher. He taught many places, but most notably at the Iowa Writers' Workshop for over 30 years. Teaching was his true passion, and here he is talking about teaching in an interview that aired on an educational television program from the University of South Carolina in the 1980s. You can't uh, teach so much as you can give people access to each other. He went on to talk about a collaborative storytelling device once used by a newspaper that brought writers together from all over the country. What you had, there was a situation very close to um, a jazz uh, combo, uh, jazz orchestration, that is, it's individual riffs on themes, uh, but at the same time, there's an integrative process. And each man, once he knows it, basically, has the ability, has the chance to take it apart on his own. I think that's what a writing workshop provides, that opportunity for interaction, for exchanges between uh, imaginations formed in different areas of the country. James Allen McPherson passed away in 2016 at the age of 72. His work was incredibly influential, but writer and scholar Anthony Walton believes he hasn't gotten the attention he deserves. That's what inspired him to curate a posthumous collection of essays that is breathing new life into McPherson's work. It's called On Becoming an American Writer, and there will be a group reading from essays in this collection tonight at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City beginning at 6 p.m. With me to talk about the life and work of James Allen McPherson is Anthony Walton. He's an author and senior writer-in-residence at Bowdoin College in Maine and curator of On Becoming an American Writer. Hello, Anthony. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. And I also want to bring Rachel McPherson into the conversation. She is an ESL and Shakespeare teacher based in Iowa City, a commissioner with the Iowa City Parks and Recreation Department, and of course, daughter of James Allen McPherson. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. Hello. And Anthony, I want to start with you. What made you think that you wanted to put this collection together? First of all, it became an opportunity that was presented by Joshua Bodwell and Godin Press. They asked me if there was anyone that I thought of that might benefit from being brought back. And I said, yes, I have been thinking about uh, James McPherson's work since I was in high school and have just been increasingly impressed by it as I've gotten older. People still think a lot about his short stories, but his nonfiction had become kind of eclipsed. So when Godin offered the opportunity to put this book together, I thought that this was something that it was time to do. And um, we were very lucky to be able to do it. So for people who aren't familiar with his nonfiction writing, tell me why you think his work is so important. I think, first of all, it's just good writing. On the level of a sentence, he writes tremendously well, sentence to sentence to sentence. He is able to get a granulated version of his thinking 
onto the page. Then in the next step beyond that, he has a, a kind of nuanced understanding of race that I think has met its moment now in the United States. He has a perspective as a Southerner, as a student of both literature and, and this is very important, a student of the law. Also, he was a member of the civil rights and Martin Luther King generation, and he wasn't what I would call triumphalist. He was a kind of a hard-headed realist. And so much of what he was saying 30, 40 years ago is now kind of coming into our frame that we can see it. And so I just thought that this is a time to try and bring this work back and push it forward to be seen as it should be. And I'll say, I think that, you know, he's a writer of the very first rank, both of Americans and African-Americans. And we should think of him alongside of people like Ralph Ellison, uh, James Baldwin, and Toni Morrison. And I don't think that that's overstating it. Why do you feel that he has been overlooked to an extent? Because, uh, you know, when you when you say we should think of him alongside those writers, I don't think a lot of people do. He he was a master short story writer. But the you know, maybe maybe it's because he didn't write novels that his name has not endured. Why do you think he's overlooked? I think certainly the absence of novels, that seems to be something that has just kind of become a measure of a writing accomplishment, which is, I don't think is necessarily truly the case. But I think that there was another factor. And I think that that's that he was a private person. He was not self-promoting. He loved teaching. He produced you know, legions of great students who went on to their own great accomplishment. And I think that he was just kind of one of those quiet folks who was often happy at home with his books, not out living the kind of celebrity author life that we see so much now. And I think that those two things had a great deal to do with why he's not as known as he should be. So when you decided you wanted to put this collection together, where did you start? He wrote a lot. (laughs) Yes, he wrote a lot. And we were fortunate that Rachel and Alan G. had done wonderful work in preserving his archives. And so they had collected pretty much everything. They sent me, you know, this huge box of essays, collected and uncollected, some of them not even published. I just worked my way through the box step by step and tried to come up with something that represented sort of an arc of the essays that they started here and they ended there as if they were telling one story having so much to choose from made that a relatively simple task. So we were able to line up these essays and hope that they kind of tell a story 
because as an aside, another thing about James's essays is that they often have autobiographical aspects that they work out of. So we're able to kind of also tell a shadow story about him and his life at the same time as we work with what the subject matter of the essays are, but wouldn't have been able to do it without the work that Rachel and Alan had done over the years, making sure that everything was there. And Rachel, when Anthony got in touch with you about putting this collection together, what did you think of the idea? I I thought it was wonderful. I I thought it was a blessing. And I was was so proud that my dad's work was still seen. So Anthony had to turn to you uh, to to really find a lot of this work that you had collected and sorted. I mean, in in many ways, you are the keeper of your father's legacy. Yes, (laughs) Uh, for better or for worse. Alan G., uh, who was his former student and mentor and and, and friend, helped me go through uh, many, many storage units that my dad had. The fact is he collected everything. (laughs) He wrote letters every single morning. I remember the sound of the typewriter click, click, clicking, 6 a.m. till about 8. And then he would Xerox the letters, both both copies, and so he would save them. His every correspondence. Every, every, wow. Everything. <laughs> matchbooks, everything, including what he his everything he was working on. So it took a lot to go through it, but but Alan and I, you know, managed to do that over a few years and and I'm so happy that this is the result, one of the results at least, this this beautiful book that I'm proud of for him on his behalf. Well, and Anthony, you said it, that it was it made it easy that there was so much material. <laughs> that that maybe sounds a little anachronistic to me. That sounds like a, kind of maybe an overwhelming amount of material to go through. Did you did you feel that Anthony in in choosing? Not at all. I I mean, first of all, it was both an honor and an immense pleasure. I can't describe what it was like to get all this work by James Allen McPherson and just kind of have it sitting there in my office at home and to just be able to go through it and to find things that were tremendous that I had no idea ever existed. So it was just kind of, it became my hobby for a while. Yeah, for how long? How long did you spend working (laughs) on this? Various time horizons. I mean, sorting through the book, through the, excuse me, the materials probably took me three or four months. And I was able to sort them into piles. Then it took, I think, probably another couple of months to kind of really narrow it down. And then I was able to put it together in a fashion that I thought worked. And then I was able to work again with Joshua Bodwell, who's a wonderful editor. And we talked and fine-tuned. And we were able to get it there. But for example, just quickly, there's an essay in the book called Reading. And that was unpublished unknown because it was a letter that he had written to a reading group in Kansas City, just kind of a letter. They were reading one of his books and they had wrote to him and asked if he would talk to them. 
And I guess he couldn't talk to them, but he wrote them this incredibly eloquent letter that is like a perfectly formed essay. And that's the sort of thing that was in this box. And so to be able to bring that forward into light is just, you know. Yeah, treasures, treasures in those boxes. We're going to have to take a short break. With me today, Rachel McPherson. She is the daughter of James Allen McPherson. Also with me is Anthony Walton. He is the curator of the new collection On Becoming an American Writer. It is a collection of essays by James Allen McPherson. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa. Presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the life and the work of James Allen McPherson. He was a short story writer, an essayist. He taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop for over 30 years, and he was beloved. He was also the first black American to receive a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And he also received a MacArthur Genius Grant as well in the early 1980s. A new collection is bringing his work to new audiences. It's called On Becoming an American Writer, Essays and Nonfiction. The collection was curated by Anthony Walton. He is an author and senior writer in residence at Bowdoin College in Maine. Rachel McPherson is also here with us today. She is James Allen McPherson's daughter, and she is a teacher based in Iowa City and a commissioner with Iowa City Parks and Recreation. And I want to talk a little bit about his biography, who this man was. And uh, Anthony, why don't you start us out? He was born and and raised in Savannah, Georgia, and grew up in the the Jim Crow South, right? Yes, born in 1943 and grew up in some of the worst of the Jim Crow time. And he was able to read, learn to read and write, Uh, He had some teachers who really believed in him, really helped. He was also kind of a library rat. (laughs) uh, Something that's interesting to me is that often they, the black children and students got the books that had been thrown away from the white libraries and schools. They got them second and third hand. And James would always comb through the books in a very kind of sense of destiny. One of the books he found was the stories of uh, Guy de Maupassant, who was the great French short story writer and was one of the inventors of short story as we think of it now. And so the thought of James at 11 or 12 finding this book and reading it and then the effect that it must have had on him is just an amazing thought. And he, his father was an electrician, but 
there came a point where his father could no longer support the family. And James and his brother really had to take over and and work hard to try to support the family, right? Yeah. His father was too successful, you know, and became a threat to people in Savannah and his license was taken from him. And my interpretation of it is that it kind of broke his spirit Mm. and caused him to drift away from the family. And James and his brother, Richard, both grabbed that responsibility and worked on making money and protecting the family. And so this is another aspect of him. First of all, it's a kind of example of something that must have been a very deep trait in his character that's taking care of others and guarding them. But also, I think it may have also, you know, caused him to think in shorter bursts or whatever because Mm -hmm. of how hard he had to work in other ways. And he had to work very hard as a professor, both at UVA and at Iowa. But yes, he took responsibility for his mother and siblings at a young age. He went to college, which was probably not a given, um, considering the circumstances he grew up in. Was he determined that that he would seek higher education? Yes. I, I think, first of all, it was fortunate he was given a scholarship and the opportunity to go to Morris Brown, which is an HBCU in Atlanta. It's part of the complex with Spelman and Morehouse and Clark and other schools down there. And he got he talks about it in one of the essays, how he got a national defense school loan. And he makes a joke that that was like the only thing in his, suitcase when he left. But yes, he was able to get from Savannah up to Atlanta, and that sort of opened his eyes. And you have a, a section from one of his essays that that really covers a lot of this period of his life. Can you, uh, there, there's a lot that goes on in this essay that I want to talk about m- deeper later in our conversation, but could you read just a little bit for us? This is from the essay Yukio. Yes. Between 1961 and 1971, a mere 10 years, I had experiences on every level of American society. While in Atlanta, I worked part-time as a waiter at the exclusive Dinkier Plaza Hotel at the post office, and at the extremely exclusive Piedmont Driving Club. And the writer Tom Wolfe wrote a lot about that in Buckhead. During summers, I worked as a dining car waiter on the Great Northern Railroad and was able to explore Chicago, St. Paul, and Minneapolis, the Rocky Mountains, and Seattle. I remember watching King's March on Washington in August of 1963 on a great wall of television sets in a department store in St. Paul. I spent my junior year in Baltimore at Morgan State College 
learning about history and politics and literature. After graduating from Morris Brown, I entered the Harvard Law School. I worked there as a janitor, as a community aide in an Irish-Italian settlement house, and as a research assistant for a professor at the Harvard Business School. In the summers, I took writing classes. In the fall of 1968, I moved to Iowa City, enrolled in the writer's workshop, and completed all my coursework in a year and a summer. In the fall of 1969, I took a teaching job at the University of California at Santa Cruz. I lived in Santa Cruz for nine months. Then I took an apartment in Berkeley and then another apartment in Berkeley. I had begun to publish stories in the Atlantic Monthly in 1968, and I published a book of stories in 1969. So that's quite the arc. It is. Rachel, what do you want to add? Well, to I want to add one story uh, about his childhood that I, I heard probably most often from my dad. And, and I don't know if you know this, Anthony. Um, well, he worked on the Great Northern Railroad uh, when he was 18. And in order to get there, he took the train some, from Savannah up through Missouri to Illinois, crossing the Mason-Dixon line. And for someone who grew up in an extreme segregated South of Jim Crow South, it was shocking to him to find out that once they crossed the Mason-Dixon line, he was permitted to go to the white car. And the head dining car waiter said, young blood, you have to go. And he refused. He said, I, I won't, because he was terrified, of course. This is, you could be lynched for this. Um, and he insisted. And so he went and he stood next to, uh, he said, a white woman for the first time in his life. And he was so terrified, he almost lost control of his bladder. Wow. But... I think that story also was deeply important to opening up his imagination for what a universal, a nominee American, a universal student could be, um, which is which is embedded in every page. I feel like of this of these essays that you've chosen. Anthony. Well, and and just listening to Anthony read that and thinking of all of the places that he went and doing all of those different jobs and interacting with people at every level of society. What a remarkable education that must have been. And that also just makes me think that it also must have been frightening, remarkable, eye-opening, and a little bit scary for someone who had lived in a community where he was marginalized. Um, I, I want to ask about Anthony there was a a sharp left turn in there that um, I think a lot of people probably are curious about so he went to Harvard Law School and then he came to the Iowa Writers Workshop <laughs> can you help me understand that what was he doing well first of all it's it's interesting to hear more stories from Rachel but he was doing well at Harvard but I think he began to lose interest in the law as a profession because I think he saw that a lot of it was about going to big corporate law firms, working in that kind of world, and he felt that that was a diminishment rather than an enlargement. I think the key 
in understanding that left turn is what he said about taking writing classes in the summer because he began to just write these incredible stories and they started to bring him a bring him attention from some of the most elite aspects of the publishing world uh including the editor of the Atlantic Monthly at the time and his, he has an essay about his friendship with that gentleman Edward Weeks yes Edward Weeks that is one of the essays that I'm saying is still there but those folks began to recognize his talent right away and they helped him just kind of advance but he was also digging into his life at the time for example his story the gold coast which is uh, one of his most known stories is about a character who works as a janitor at an irish settlement house in boston and so we see him incorporating these various aspects of his almost daily lived experience into news stories and i think that as he became aware that well he could actually do something with that side of his life as a writer as a reader i think the law started to lose its appeal to him but i also want to say and perhaps we can talk about this in a few minutes Studying the law had a great deal to do with his vision as a writer. Particularly, he was able to work with Professor Paul Freund at Harvard Law School, and James did a lot of work on the 14th Amendment while at Harvard Law School. And that stayed with him his entire career as a writer, that work, and it really informed a lot of his vision. So in many ways, he was just very fortunate in this path that he was able to go places that helped him, and then he could get what he needed and move to the next place. And he, after the writer's workshop, he pursued teaching um, at a number of different institutions. The University of Virginia is one of them. That's where you come into the picture, right, Rachel? And and that's also where he was when he won the Pulitzer Prize. And then in 1981, he came to the Writers' Workshop. And, and although he traveled, he taught other places, he spent time in Japan, but he was affiliated with the Writers' Workshop then for the rest of his life. So uh, there's a there's a beautiful, beautiful essay. This is the, the essay in the collection that brought me to tears, Rachel, um, that he wrote about his relationship with you. And um, I, to summarize just briefly, your mother and father got divorced. It was a contentious divorce. And your father moved to Iowa. And so here he was halfway across the country from you, trying to be a very active and engaged part of your life. And the essay that he wrote is, is just such a beautiful tribute to how, how much he wanted to be part of your life and, and, and the great lengths that he went to to do that. Could you read us just a little bit from the beginning of the essay? 
Disneyland. Not long ago, as a kind of joke, I sent Rachel, my daughter, by email, a line from an old song by Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross and Louis Armstrong. If you're a king for only a day, how'd you go about having your way? This is the answer that came back. If I were king, people couldn't blast their bass players in their cars. And if they did, they would be punished by listening to All Things Considered on NPR all day long. <laughs> Except that if I were king, NPR wouldn't have much to report on the radio, only good news. And so they would fill up the airtime by playing songs backwards and giving $100 to listeners who could name the tune. Everyone would have to smile at least once a day. Band-Aids wouldn't hurt when you yanked them off sores. The walls in dentist's office would be covered with Waterhouse and Rossetti murals instead of lame, symmetrical diamond patterns. And no one would have to listen to elevator music while on hold, only swing. If I were king, oranges would grow pre-peeled and pens wouldn't leak and no one would be named Gertrude. Parks would have giant tree houses with signs that read, people of any height may climb. Anyone could order off a damn kitty menu, and swivel chairs would be a requirement for every dinner table. So if conversation got really boring, people could twirl around instead. Everyone would have their own ideas about religion and no judgment about anyone else's. At twilight, everyone would wander around a giant park with spouting fountains, and a double rainbow would streak the sky. A church chime would ring at 7 p.m., you know, the one that sounds like our doorbell, and that would be the sign for everybody to make a circle, not caring or even wondering if you're standing next to a bum, a PhD, or a movie star, and do the hokey pokey. That's what it's all about. I was amazed by the reach and vitality of Rachel's imagination as she attempted to reorder the world according to her own sense of happiness. I sent her another email. You have learned that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. But this is not entirely true. I have heard it said that on the seventh day, God was not yet pleased with his creations. So on that day, he created another thing that would be able to celebrate all the work he had done on the first six days. On the seventh day, God created imagination, and he gave this thing dominion over all else he had created. The person who is blessed with this is able to stand in his own place and at the same time project himself into another person's place see from the eyes of that person, and understand the world from that person's point of view. This gift is called compassion, and it is a very, very rare thing. That is Rachel McPherson reading one of her father's essays. It's called Disneyland, and it's about their relationship. This hour, we're talking about the life and work of James Allen McPherson. There's a new collection of his essays and nonfiction. It's called On Becoming an American Writer. With me, the curator of this collection, Anthony Walton, and also Rachel McPherson, James Allen McPherson's daughter. There will be a reading tonight at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City at 6 o'clock. A group of people reading reading from this collection of essays, and we will talk more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about a new collection of essays. 
by James Allen McPherson. It's called On Becoming an American Writer, Essays and Nonfiction, selected and introduced by Anthony Walton, who is here with me today. He is an author and senior writer in residence at Bowdoin College in Maine. Rachel McPherson is also here today. She is James Allen McPherson's daughter, and she is an ESL and Shakespeare teacher based in Iowa City, also a commissioner with Iowa City Parks and Recreation. And James Allen McPherson is legendary in Iowa City, but legendary elsewhere as well. He was the first black American to receive a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. He received a MacArthur Genius Grant. He spent 30 years teaching at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he passed away in 2016 at the age of 72. And Rachel, just before the break, you read a little bit from his just beautiful essay about his relationship with you, where he writes about how much he wanted to maintain this connection with you, even though you lived far apart, and how hard he worked as a father. Also, his incredible love and admiration for you comes through in in every word of this essay. Growing up, of course, kids take their parents for granted. That's what we do, right? So you actually saw his name in a textbook when you were in school and you were surprised <laughs> to find his name there? Oh, right. My high school, um, yeah, AP American Lit class. I I was. I was surprised. I, I just didn't know him necessarily as, as a writer. I mean, he was a writer of letters to me every, almost every day wow. since I was uh, two. Um, and, and I have the hoarding tendencies and have kept them as well. Um, and then mixtapes of, of, of songs that he loved, and I would play them on my cassette player. And so we, we had a deep love of music and, and letter writing and phone calls every day and Santa Claus and magic. And so I, I, the writing part, the literature part, didn't come into it necessarily, um, in a, at least in a substantial way in my mind, until I saw that he was in you know, a, a textbook and... and um, and yeah, it was. I was a, a bit surprised and a little embarrassed because then everybody, you know, word got around and right. Everybody wanted to know, and you're like, "Well, he's just my dad." Right? Yeah, and they wanted me also to to comment. I remember one person asked if if I could tell him all about the essay story, uh, short story, so that he could write a an A plus paper on it. And I really couldn't help him, and I believe he got a C plus. <laughs> So you also had the opportunity to get to know your father as an adult. And here in Iowa City, I mean, he spent 30 years here teaching. You know many of his students, and he he was so beloved. So tell me a little bit uh, from your perspective of of who he was as an instructor, because he, he did leave all of this remarkable work behind, but that was in so many ways, his life's work was to teach others. Oh, oh yes. He was um, just a, a masterful teacher. He, well, I think this is a, a testament to, to his teaching. When he was in the hospital dying, I mean, the last days of his life, 150 emails, little letters came in from the hospital, uh, to the hospital from students, most of whom I'd never met or heard of. And they, they said, Beautiful things reflecting on his teaching and his and his and it was interesting. It was consistent. What he taught them was, this person says, uh, uh, Chuck Oldham says, the beauty and grace of the human experience, uh, the great movements, the repeating cycles. You taught me to see them. 
you would go on to teach me that storytelling is an inherently moral act and also a magical one. They go on and on, and, and it was a blessing to be able to read them. He would he couldn't throw away, he couldn't stand to throw away any of his students' papers, work, yeah, uh, yeah the, 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 the work, including the copies. So part of what is in these seven storage units are are you know, hundreds of copies of student stories. Uh, some One time he saw some in a recycling bin. He couldn't stand to see them in there. And so he fished them out. And again, wow. they're now in the basement, I believe. He wanted to, he read for Whiting Awards and National Book Award in order to stay relevant so that he could write good, rec- excellent recommendations for his for his students so that they could prosper in that way, that his name would remain, remain relevant in that way for them. And that's what I remember as a kid, piles and piles of books and manuscripts on the dining room table. Um, and and uh, he went through all of them. He, he said that I asked him, I said, well, why don't you just read the first chapter? Why do you have? He said, it's not it's not fair. He wouldn't do that. And so he would read the entire novel uh, in order to to make a fair decision. Wow. He had friends over. He had students over. I mean, they were also his friends to the to the house for every holiday. Um he he was very special to, to a lot of people in ways that I don't know. And it's kind of, I sometimes feel like I have many brothers and sisters because he, he had a unique relationship with each of them. And and we also share certain things. He was a little, his sense of humor was <laughs> was uh, outrageous, quietly outrageous, someone said. And, and we, we shared in that as well. Some people wrote um, quotes that he said during class. And one here is... Um, Uh, what is liberalism but the Judeo-Christian band-aid for the wounds of capitalism? So, <laughs> so I I feel so so overwhelmed with with luck and and blessings that that he was so close to his students because they helped me remember who he was and reaffirm who he was, which is a inherently a deeply generous soul. Yeah, and in, that's such an incredible legacy. He touched so many lives, and their work is touching so many lives. That's really beautiful. Anthony, we we will not have time to to talk about all of the essays in this collection, but you included essays from different parts of his life, different focuses. I mean, there's, of course, the the personal essay about Rachel, but there's also a very personal essay um, about a home that he owned and rented to some another family in Baltimore. Tell me a little bit. Give me kind of the overview. What do you hope a person who maybe hasn't read James McPherson's work before will learn about him from this collection and what you've selected? Well, I hope it's just a kind of tiny introduction to what is there and what he accomplished. And again, this kind of unique American vision that perhaps we are finally as a society catching up to. You know, I think that when you look at just all of the kind of facets of his mind and you turn it this way and there's this glimmer of just genius and then you turn it that way and there's some lovely human moment that he's recounting the essay that you mentioned about uh, the Washington family in Baltimore to me it's such a revealing story about him because he bought the house 
he just happened to be going by the auction and he saw an elderly black woman and her husband sitting on the porch and they were in their best clothes and the house was being auctioned and he found out that it was going to be sold and that they were going to be put out. So James being James bought the house. He won the auction and he let them stay and he continued renting the house. And the story goes on because after Mrs. Washington passed, then James was going to sell a house, but he got a letter from her that she had written talking about her family and her life and he just decided he couldn't do it so he hung on to the house and it's just such an example of another side of him that we might not even think of in terms of him as an artist but him as a humanitarian and a wonderful person so it's just a chance to be able to see all of these different aspects. I mean, quickly, another example would be that profile that he wrote for the New York Times of Richard Pryor. And this piece was written just before Pryor became this supernova of fame and became the biggest movie star in the world and all of that. And so the things that James notices as he's spending time with Pryor and the insight that he's able to give into Pryor's practice is still relevant today in looking at various comedians. You can learn a lot about comedians working today from reading this essay. Plus, he provides us in his usual nerd fashion a kind of mini history of American comedy. Yeah. So... There's just all of these different ways that we're able to learn about him and his mind. And that's what we're trying to do. He he was such an extraordinary man in so many ways. And it feels like in, in reading his essays, in learning about him, he was constantly in search of knowledge. And I think an example of this that, that probably would shock a lot of people was his exploration, a tr- an, an attempt to understand white supremacy in the United States. He was actually a member of the KKK. Rachel, can you tell me about that? Oh, boy. Yes, he subscribed to so many right-wing publications to understand how they were thinking in all sides, all extremes. For so many years, this is by mail, that after a while, I think people, I guess, in the KKK saw that this person named McPherson, a good Irish last name, in California and Iowa and Connecticut had been faithful, and now uh, now he's in Iowa, Eastern Iowa, and membership was low. And so they wrote him a letter and said, would he consider being the Eastern Iowa recruiter for the KKK? And he wrote back on that trusty typewriter that it'd be an honor or something, something. I can't wait to find that letter in the storage units and sent it on and they sent him back a little card and he he flashed it and loved it and and then of course years later uh, Dave Chappelle has a, a character who's a blind Klansman but black and uh, he I remember watching that sketch with him and he smiled and, and he said oh man Dave Chappelle stole my joke <laughs> 
But he just, he knew so much about people and humanity and seemed to always be seeking. Yes. And I think the compassion part, because it expanded his imagination about what they were thinking, how another person thought, he, he did have compassion for people that one wouldn't normally expect. I'm not saying he had compassion in the traditional sense right, for right. but at least a willingness to to hear and under, try to understand what's at the heart of what's going on. But it also goes to that absolutely wicked sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> that he had which comes through again and again and again in his writing and to also add to what Rachel just said for example, his story, Why I Love Country Music. James, one of his things was, well, why wouldn't Black people love country music? They're from the South, <laughs> you know. And so this story kind of goes into that and gives a wonderful kind of position paper as to why country music belongs to Black people as much as it does to white southerners or whatever mm -hmm. and he had this just ability the fancy literary term for it would be negative capability but the ability to kind of quiet his own subject position and imagine out into the world and as rachel said try to understand everyone and then that's one of the reasons his writing is so great because he could put himself in anyone's seat mm -hmm. and imagine their world. Mm -hmm. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to ask about the group reading that is taking place at Prairie Lights tonight in Iowa City, beginning at 6 p.m. And Rachel, obviously your father's not here to read his own words and to speak for himself, but this seems like a really special gathering of people who are going to read his work. Tell me what the plan is. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of this. Um, this book deserved a reading at Prairie Lights. It had been, uh, last time he did a reading at Prairie Lights was 1998 for Crab Cakes. So it seemed fitting to ask some of his colleagues from the workshop. And James Galvin was a friend and longtime colleague and a very close friend. And of course, Samantha Chang, she was a student and then a colleague. And Jamel Brinkley is a, is a newer professor at the, the Writer's Workshop and, and, and wonderful writer. And Patricia Foster, who was a dear friend and, and colleague uh, of my dad's and in the nonfiction program. So, and myself, because I guess I have to. Um, <laughs> and I'm just so happy that it's at Prairie Lights. That's the, the main thing he would be. And it, hopefully all of his friends um, will, will come and it'll be a sort of remembrance of him. Yeah, lovely. And he was a beloved teacher. He was also a beloved member of the community in Iowa City and has recently been honored by um, having a park named after him in Iowa City. That happened in 2021. What does that mean to you to have James Allen McPherson Park in Iowa City? It means the world to me for him because being a part of this Iowa City community, there could be no bigger honor, I think. I think he would have, it would have meant more to him than any sort of uh, Guggenheim, MacArthur grant, all these things, because this is exactly what his, if he had a some sort of life philosophy, to be, to bring people from different groups together in one place, and a park represents that, and and um, and this park especially, it's it's 
it's growing and it's it's working hard to to bring in a lot of different types of people and and I can imagine a lot of people will see the name of the park and then they'll go home and they'll type into their search engine James Allen McPherson and that that does keep his name and his legacy alive in a really unusual and unique way doesn't it it does it yes it does that is that is really <laughs> lovely. Well, we are out of time, but uh, Rachel McPherson, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Rachel McPherson is an ESL and Shakespeare teacher based in Iowa City. Anthony Walton, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Anthony Walton is an author and senior writer in residence at Bowdoin College in Maine. He is the curator of this collection that we've been talking about. On Becoming an American Writer, Essays and Nonfiction by James Allen McPherson. And again, there will be a group reading tonight at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City beginning at 6 p.m. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.